0: Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Simon Jackman. I'm professor of political science at the university of Sydney, but also, and perhaps more importantly for this morning, the chief executive officer of the United States study center at the university of Sydney. And thank you for joining us again in our webinar series. Um, We've been so thrilled to be able to bring these to you roughly about two a week and turning adversity into a virtue, this has given us an opportunity, and, and indeed an impetus, to reach out to speakers and guests and friends uh, in the United States, where typically engagement would mean flying them to Australia at great <laughs> expense and time, um, but in this new world of uh, conducting so much more business online, um, it's allowed us to, to reach out to individuals uh, with extraordinary careers uh, in in government service in the United States, and and today's no exception. And I'll introduce uh, Ambassador Wendy Sherman in in just a moment, a very special guest today. Um, But as is customary, I will, uh, and if this indeed were a physical event at the university, uh, we would acknowledge country, and we will do so online. um, But the University of Sydney and indeed the United States Study Center stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Uh, And let me turn to today's uh, guest now. Uh, Wendy Sherman is joining us from from Boston, uh, where it's uh, (laughs) mid-evening. And, and we're so thrilled that, that again, with the technology, uh, we just able to land with the time zone difference between uh, Sydney and the East Coast of the United States. But Wendy is now a professor of the practice of public leadership and a director at the Center for Public Leadership at the K School, the Kennedy School at, at Harvard University. Um, she is also a senior counselor at the Albright Stonebridge Group and but her career in in, in government service uh is long and extensive and distinguished and and a brief summary might run uh as follows um she uh served as a uh, undersecretary of state for political affairs um she but critically for today's discussion uh during the obama administration she had uh uh, two very big jobs uh uh serving uh um in the Department of State. And, and that is really running the North Korea policy desk and, 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 and negotiations with North Korea, uh, but critically also um, a running point on, on what's now, you know, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the so-called Iran nuclear deal, as it's uh, has sort of come to be known in, in the lay public. Um, enormously important tasks and enormous accomplishments uh, uh, chalked up uh, under under Wendy's leadership during that time in government. Uh, she's the author of a book uh, summarizing lessons learned from her time in government service called Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence, and that was published in, in 2018. Um, and joining me today um, to help um, with the moderating duties, uh, is, is our own uh, non-resident fellow, Bruce Wolpe, who's joining us from, my, I think, a, a few suburbs away from from myself here in Sydney this morning. Uh, good morning, or good evening, as the case may be, uh, to Wendy and, and to Bruce. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Simon. And
0: Thank so, you. Wendy, terrific to have you with us. Like, as I said in the intro, this is just Adversity and finding virtue in the middle of it. Um, ordinarily uh, engaging with you would mean a long plane ride uh, for one or both of us, um, um, but, but we're so thrilled uh, to be able to talk with you today. And look, and foreign policy is, is looming so large um, in American domestic politics, intruding into domestic politics in, in the midst of uh, the, the pandemic. And, of course, we in Australia are, are acutely aware of that. But I thought, and we're going to spend a fair amount of time on that, but I, I just want to draw on your experience as, um, as an Iranian hand. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering, first of all, before we talk about the United States, let's have a quick chat about Iran. And, you know, in the Western media, we're very focused on it. In Australia, we're getting a ton of information about the course of the pandemic in the United States. But I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of the course of the pandemic in Iran and what does it mean there for Iran's domestic politics, perhaps even the stability of the regime?
2: Yeah, first of all, it's wonderful to be with you, Simon, uh, and to be with my, uh, I was gonna say old friend, but we are old friends. Uh, <laughs> in all manner of that word, I think now, Bruce, um, but um, just terrific to be with you all. And I, like so many Americans, love Australia. Uh, have been to Australia, and um, would love to be on that plane ride. It is a long way, uh, but once you get to Australia, you never want to leave. It's such a beautiful, warm, and fascinating country. Uh, so it's great to be here, even if it's virtually tonight, uh, to be with you all. Um, there's no question that Iran has suffered terribly uh, with the coronavirus. Uh, no, no question about it. Uh, and that the government has mismanaged the coronavirus. Uh, The level of death is quite high. Uh, Then again, in my own country, we haven't done such a great job of it either. So I think what really matters in your question, Simon, is has the mismanagement of the coronavirus in Iran changed the future of the regime and of the country going forward? Uh, And sadly, Although a lot has been written about this in the last few days, I don't think so. Um, Yes, uh, people are fed up with the regime. Yes, people are fed up with the economic situation because the sanctions under Trump uh, are quite onerous, have really taken an economic toll uh, on Iran. And even though they're not allowed to sell oil, they try to sell oil, but the price of oil has been so low, it hasn't really helped their economy in the ways that they had hoped it would. So yes, they're tired of the regime. Yes, the people are sick of the horrible economy, but the regime has an immense power to oppress its people, an immense power to hold back any uprising. We've seen them do that time and time again. And what we're seeing them do now is what they usually revert to, which is to talk about America the enemy and death to America, which brings the country together in a nationalist kind of way, even at the same time they wish that their country was other than it is.
0: Um, Where are we in the electoral cycle such as it is in Iran, and how is that perhaps relevant to the, I mean, the intersection of, in the US, right? Of course, it's rather obvious, the intersection of the pandemic set against uh, the political calendar. Is there. Is there a parallel uh, dynamic in, in Iran at all?
2: There probably will be some dynamic, though their presidential election is in 2021. Rouhani, who is the current president, has served his eight years. You can only do two terms okay. in Iran. Uh, But it's also important for people to understand if they don't, and I'm sure many of your listeners do, that um, you don't just get to run for office. You have to be approved uh, to be on a slate of approved candidates for president. Uh, That approval comes uh, through uh, a a council of Islamic clerics uh, approved by the supreme leader of Iran. uh, And... Uh, So I think this will be an important presidential election, one, because there is not going to be an incumbent. Ahmadinejad, in fact, may run again. Wow. Um, But it's also important because the Supreme Leader, who's 80, uh, has been thought to have been in ill health for quite some time, though he has beat the um, predictions many times about his health. But people will be looking at the president. They will be looking at the slate of people. To figure out whether anyone is positioning themselves as well to become the next supreme leader, so it's a very consequential election.
0: Sure, um, I'm wondering. Just could you give us a brief sense of you know the, the big note that you know a lay audience will be aware of is is the killing of uh, Soleimani by you know U.S. forces. Um, um, We've also had the, uh, the, you know, there's a few other things going on that may not be uh, so top of mind, particularly perhaps for Australian, an Australian lay audience, uh, or even Australian foreign affairs specialist for that moment. But just your assessment of the, the relationship at the moment and, and how close we are to something again kinetic, perhaps, uh, in, the, in the US-Iran relationship at the moment?
2: Well, here's the good news. I truly believe neither President Trump nor President Rouhani nor the Supreme Leader of Iran actually want to go to war. Uh, We saw in the Soleimani assassination uh, a retaliation by the Iranians, but that retaliation did not outright kill any American. Uh, It did, after the fact, as we found out, create quite a number of traumatic brain injuries Uh, But at the time, everyone thought that it had really not touched Americans. Uh, I think if an American had died in that retaliatory attack, uh, we might have found ourselves in a different place. But Iran was very careful, and the President of the United States didn't then take another turn of the wheel.
0: Right.
2: Everybody sort of cooled off. uh, Because I don't think that the President of the United States thought it was in his interest. Now, there are some analysts who think, "Hmm, if the presidential election here in the United States looks really tough, tougher than it looks today, that the president of the United States might look for a foreign escapade of some sort to garner attention and say to the American people, you don't want to change the president in the midst of this. But I think that's harder now with the pandemic uh, and with the expectation that it will, even if it cools down a little bit over our summer, that it will come back in the fall. It may combine with our seasonal flu and be quite terrible. And our economy is terrible. So I think um, the president uh, will be very mindful of that. And certainly Iran is very mindful of that. Doesn't mean we can't get there, but the news I don't think the leaders want to get there.
0: Sure. Um, I guess the other thing is to, I mean, the single biggest thing perhaps in, in the US um, around bilateral, and it's coming right back now to, to your territory, and that's, and that's the so-called Iran deal. Um, um, how was, I mean, there's so much to talk about there, but I, w- I want to, and maybe I'll, I'll let Bruce get into this in a little more detail, but how was it, received in Iran, um, before we get to the US motivation and the way it's playing in the US <laughs> domestic, but let's talk about Iran for just one more moment. And that is, when when Trump so vociferously went after the deal and very dramatically pulled out, the reaction inside Iran, I'm wondering if you'd give us a quick readout on that and what is the Iranian regime? You just said sort of backing away perhaps a little, their strategy for handling a president like Trump, more generally?
2: So I can't speak for the Iranian people. Sure. Uh, As an analyst, I can tell you what I've seen. Um, But, you know, none of us really knows. um, Because we aren't inside the country and we don't have the fingertips. Your um, ambassador who travels uh, now and again to Tehran probably has a better set of fingertips than I do uh, on the situation. Uh, But that said, um, I think that um, the Iranians see all that's going on as quite difficult and saw what the president did as difficult but not unexpected. Uh, When he campaigned, he said he was going to leave the deal. Uh, In the early months when he had um, cabinet officers around him who didn't want him to to leave the deal, they got him to stay in. When those cabinet officers left, most of us knew that the new people around him favored taking a very, very hard line and leaving the deal. So it didn't come as a shock to anyone because it had been sort of unraveling bit by bit. But I think one thing that's really important that not everybody notices is the deal was actually quite durable, because even after the United States of America pulled out and imposed sanctions, until the last several months, the deal held together. Iran was in compliance, report after report from the International Atomic Energy Agency, which monitored the deal, said they were in full compliance, and it was not until the President of the United States took several more sanctioned steps, killed Soleimani, that it became impossible for Iran not to take steps to begin to unravel the deal. But even in that case, Iran has taken steps that are reversible as opposed to irreversible. They are nonetheless very concerning and not things we want Iran to be doing. But nonetheless, it's quite extraordinary that the deal held together for as long as it did.
0: Yeah. No, that's that was my sense at the time, too. Um, and so, again, bravo! <laughs> thank you for your service, as we say. Um, um, and I'll let Bruce pick up that thread. By the way, Bruce, um, that's enough from me for the time being. I, I'd love, I'd love you and you, you and Wendy to to take it from here for a little while.
1: Thanks. Thank you, thank you so much. I, and I always enjoy addressing you as Madam Ambassador. And uh, it's just great to have you here. And just picking up on that thread, I mean, uh, how irrevocable is the damage? And what do the other signatories, where do they want to go from here? You have Russia and China as signatories. France has a a deeper relationship with Iran that's uh, come into play, uh, particularly when there's been some tit for tat missile stuff in the Gulf and so forth. What are the other, how are the other signatories looking at this as it's unraveled, not irrevocably perhaps, and where do, what do, what do they, where do they want to go from here?
2: I would say that France, Great Britain, Germany, Russia, China, the European Union want the deal to stay together. Uh, they have not moved to snap back the multilateral sanctions. Uh, they have tried to keep relations going. Uh, several of them have ambassadors in Tehran. Um, So they have not wanted to all fall apart. But it is hard to hold it together. And as you know, the United States is preparing, uh, probably not until after September, heading towards the presidential election here in the United States in November, to go to the UN Security Council and push uh, for some actions, which I can describe further if you want, to try to further unravel the deal. Uh, so we are going to have a, a further confrontation, most likely, uh, this fall.
1: And, and do the Iranians just wait that out, do you think, uh, not knowing the result in November, uh, playing for as much time as possible, and then as much flexibility post-November, uh, that they can exercise?
2: Yeah, there have been several articles over the last couple of days that Iran seems to have stepped down its attacks in the Middle East, its provocative actions in the Gulf of Hormuz, um, its support for the prime minister that the United States also wanted to win in Iraq. Um, And people read that as Iran trying to not uh, stir the pot such that there might be military action or people might feel like they have to be more retaliatory and try to hold that kind of position from here until November. That's a really long time. It is also true. They've been in the middle of a pandemic, just like the rest of us. And so they are short, shorter of money, not just because of the sanctions, but because of the pandemic and their attention has been on the coronavirus in the United States. Nothing is on the evening news, but coronavirus. Finally, something broke through tonight, which is a tragedy dams have burst in Michigan right? and there are thousands of people who have had to been evacuated and it may change the terrain of that part of Michigan forever. It's so much water and uh, that finally is a story that cut in above uh, the coronavirus but only because Michigan is suffering as it is with the coronavirus and now they're suffering with another disaster. Mm-hmm. So, um I think Iran is probably trying to hedge its bets until November, but unfortunately, November is still a significant ways away.
1: It is. And, you know, we all have a stake in this, and there can be miscalculation where things suddenly get out of of control. So what's, and Australia is not a signatory, but has been supportive of the JCPOA. What's your message to countries like Australia as they watch this uh, with concern as it's unfolding?
2: Oh, goodness. I wish there were a simple answer to that. Of course, support uh, the Europeans, Russia and China in trying to hold the deal together. Uh, Try to impress upon the President of the United States um, that he should hold steady. He's got better things and more things to pay attention to. Um, Right now, his numbers in the election, there's a new poll out today that has him nearly 10 points down nationally. Of course, in our system, it matters which states you win because of our electoral college. But even in states that he won last time, he is in some serious trouble. And this will, uh, uh, our presidential election, as I think yours is to some extent, though you have a bit more of a parliamentary system, is um, a a referendum on the incumbent. So uh, Australia is important to the United States. You all have maintained a fairly decent relationship with President Trump. And so urging him not to double down and risk war would be a good message.
1: I think it's uh, one that uh, should be heard. Um, Israel and Saudi Arabia have been very hostile to the JCPOA uh, from its inception. I remember I was uh, when, when Netanyahu came to Congress and addressed the House of Representatives without the foreknowledge of the White House and the President of the United States, I, I thought that was just a shocking development. Uh, as, as far as uh, how diplomacy was being exercised. The Saudis have been very hostile to it. Sometimes you wonder whether Saudi Arabia wishes the, uh, the Americans would fight to the last American to, uh, <laughs> to, go, to take care of Iran. But uh, what's your view of uh, where those countries stand today, looking at the Gulf and the array of forces and the balance of power in the Gulf and the East today, and whether they have also dialed back, as Iran and the United States have, from being more confrontational. What's your reading of where they are? Uh,
2: My reading is that everybody is first and foremost absorbed with their own internal problems. Uh, The price of oil hit Saudi Arabia very hard. Uh, They're trying to figure out their way out of that. They have a very strong friend in President Trump, made his first trip as president to Saudi Arabia. Uh, And um, as you know, uh, may have heard the secretary of state is now embroiled in a bit of a set of problems uh, because he wanted the inspector general of the State Department uh, dismissed, which the president said he would do at Secretary Pompeo's request. And it is speculated that part of what the IG was doing was uh, looking at Pompeo uh, using emergency authorities to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia, even when Congress did not want that to happen and passed a law for it not to happen. So uh, Saudi Arabia, I think, feels like it has the United States has its back. The Trump administration does anyway, uh, but it has been absorbed, I think, internally with some economic problems with uh, its own uh, trying to, you know, do an IPO with Saudi Aramco in the middle of a pandemic and an oil price uh, depression. It's a little tough. Uh, Israel obviously has been completely. Uh, enmeshed in its election politics. Finally, uh, putting a government together, we'll see how long it lasts, uh, trying to make decisions about what it needs to do vis-a-vis the Palestinians. Uh, So they have a lot of internal politics, but neither is a friend. Uh, I should have also mentioned Saudi Arabia, of course, was very deeply embroiled and still is in a horrific war in Yemen, which was taking up its resources and attention, uh, I think, to the detriment of Saudi Arabia in the long run, quite frankly. Um, horrible, horrible catastrophe in Yemen, a, a human tragedy of immense proportion. Um, but neither Saudi Arabia nor Israel uh, supported the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, that was true of most of the Gulf Arab states. Oman uh, took a more neutral or supportive decision in support of the JCPOA. They've often played that role between the Gulf and Iran. But I have to tell you, uh, Bruce, Simon, and uh, viewers, that during the Iran negotiation, I met with the Gulf Arab states before and after every negotiating round. I met with Israel uh, in secure circumstances. They knew every single piece of the deal. And the professionals, particularly the professionals in Israel, all thought that what we were doing was the right thing. Uh, The prime minister made another Choice and another decision, and he's the prime minister, and he gets to decide what's in the best security interest of his country. And he decided that this deal was not in the best security interest of his country, and I respect the decision he made.
1: That is really, really interesting. And just take, just playing out that criticism a little bit. Um, there are a lot of those who criticize the deal because it could it would lapse, you know, later in this decade in certain respects free Iran to resume some nuclear programs under some circumstances, and it didn't change Iran's support for terrorism in the region. And that that is the rap against the deal from those who oppose it consistently. Um, It's potent criticism. Um, How do you respond to that?
2: I agree that we have not dealt with uh, uh, state sponsorship of terrorism. We have not dealt with the human rights abuses. We have not dealt with the people who were imprisoned Uh, in ways they should not be, in Evan prison in Tehran. Um, We have not dealt with the arms sales all around the world. We have not dealt with a lot of the malign behavior of Iran. But I believe President Obama made the right choice that we focus on ensuring that Iran not get a nuclear weapon. Because if Iran got a nuclear weapon, their ability to project power into the Gulf region uh, to threaten Israel Uh, would be profound, and unless we got that off the table as a threat, we couldn't use all of our remaining sanctions, which were enormous and extensive and effective, to deal with all of these other issues. Secondly, you know, people say, why didn't you just negotiate all of it together? Well, there are several answers to that. One, Iran didn't have the authority to negotiate everything else. Two, if we had negotiated everything at the same time, we might have ended up with the middling middle on everything. Mm So one might say, I'll give a little less money to Hezbollah, but I want to use more advanced centrifuges in my nuclear program. So we might end up not have undermining their capacity to get a nuclear weapon and ensuring they wouldn't obtain a nuclear weapon. And we wouldn't have taken care of the state sponsorship of terrorism. I believe that if Hillary Clinton had been president and not Donald Trump and the JCPOA would have continued, we knew from discussions we'd had with the Iranians that we could then have talked about all of these other issues. We never took off the sanctions on all of these issues. We could have worked strategically with our partners to use them to push back on all of these other issues and, at the same time, having ensured that Iran never obtained a nuclear weapon.
1: It's, uh, it's just so interesting. And, and in, before the negotiations really gelled and became so intensive, it was uh, really a almost a month-to-month uh, uh, moment of truth as to whether Israel would have taken a unilateral strike against Iran. And I think they came very, very close to it on several occasions. And the fact is, even though we have a, had a deal and now it's been in retreat, Um, the the sense that there's an imminent military strike by either Israel or Saudi Arabia against Iran does not exist right now, which is, I guess, some comfort uh, in a very complex situation. Um, I really want to ask, let's turn to November and the US election. I really want to ask what's going to happen with respect to the US and Iran if Trump is reelected. What happens in 2021?
2: It's a really good question. Um, I can't speak for Donald Trump either.
1: I'm not asking you to.
2: You know, he is committed and Secretary Pompeo is committed and certainly um, Brian Hook is committed to continuing this maximum pressure effort. Uh, I think they will continue to do so. I think in a second administration, they would ramp up things even more, take more chances, even increase the chance of war. They say it is not a policy of regime change, but then I don't know what it is because it has not achieved any of the objectives. Uh, the amount of time that it would take Iran to get enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon has decreased. Since the president left the deal and Iran began uh, building its stockpile and using more advanced centrifuges, Um, the uh, terror in the Middle East hasn't stopped for a while. It increased. It's a little quieter right this moment, but I think that's because of the election. Uh, They haven't stopped railing against Israel and threatening Israel's security. Uh, They haven't stopped putting people in prison. Uh, They haven't stopped abusing their own people. So I'm not quite sure what the policy has achieved, but I believe the president is unalterably committed to it.
1: But is the goal of that policy to get, you know, sometimes it happens with stock markets when they drop by 50%, (laughs) capitulation, and that ultimately the objective is, okay. you got us, we hate it, but we're going to renegotiate the deal and deal with these other issues too. Isn't that where they want to go?
2: I think that is where they hope to go. Uh, if President Trump is reelected, that may happen uh, because there may not be other choices for Iran. Uh, but I don't know who is in the Trump administration who would be able to forge a negotiation that would be successful on all of these issues all at the same time. I think that if uh, Joe Biden, if Vice President Biden, is elected President of the United States, Every one of us knows there has to be a follow-on agreement. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, after all, is a few years old now. And most arms control agreements have a follow-on agreement. And this one will need a follow-on agreement as well. It will not be enough to just return to the status quo ante. We have to get there to cool everything out. But then we will have to have a follow-on agreement and a dialogue agreement to address some of these other issues, if not all of them.
1: And that's what you would expect uh, President Biden to do if, in fact, he wins in November and, and try and find ways and means to start restart that process?
2: Yes, I believe he would.
1: Is there, uh, you um, t- got the agreement, uh, took it to Congress, there was implementing legislation that was passed in Congress. Uh, I think I remember you testifying uh, on it <laughs> on, the, on the Hill. Um, is, there, is there bipartisan supporting, you have positions and positions. Is there bipartisan support in Congress for a renegotiated deal? Or is it just going to be Democrats and Republicans at each other's throats again over this, and you kind of just have to force it through the House and the Senate without building a larger coalition behind it? Is there anything that kind of breaches this divide between the two parties that you see?
2: Well, uh, one would be if the Democrats take the Senate, hold the House, and win the President.
1: <laughs> but that's still, uh, just so... that's still just Democrats. I mean, do you see, do you get, Do you feel that there are Republicans who really want to do this too?
2: I think there are some Republicans who would under other circumstances. I think that uh, because uh, Vice President Biden knows the Congress as well as he does, uh, he can build on some relationships to try to see where we can go together. Uh, I think he's very committed to trying to build bridges in our country and find those places where we can work together. Uh, you know, it, it's not that there's been nothing. Uh, Democrats and Republicans agreed on sanctions on Russia. Democrats and Republicans agreed to stop arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, both want the Yemen war to be over. Democrats and Republicans both want to find a way to have a negotiated withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, Democrats and Republicans Want to stop what Iran is doing in the Middle East, Uh, but the way we would do that would undoubtedly be different. But I do think uh, there are places where we can come together, and I think that a President Biden uh, would have a chance at the beginning of his administration to try to get things back on track, uh, widen the scope. Um, But we don't know where we'll be in November, and if seven more things could happen that could change that calculus about how one approaches this and what one does, what happens in the UN Security Council in the fall could change everybody's calculus about how we move forward and whether you can bring a coalition together, uh, to find a, a better way.
1: Right. Um, now I know this discussion is like a trip to the dentist. So how are <laughs> things in North, how are things in North Korea? Tell us, <laughs> how's it going there?
2: <laughs> Kim Jong Kim Un just thinks it's groovy. <laughs> So, I think, you know, when, uh, Simon, you asked the question about um, Iran uh, and what would happen to its regime, it took me back to a conversation right as Madeleine Albright was going to become the second Secretary of State to Bill Clinton when he was mm-hmm. president. And I uh, was going to be her counselor, which is sort of the senior advisor. Mm-hmm. And we had a meeting of the folks who were gonna be working with her right before she was uh, going to be sworn in. And we talked about things, and one of the things everybody in the room said was, North Korea was certainly gonna fall within a couple of years. Yeah. And we agreed that I would spend some time getting to know uh, the Korean peninsula, and we would see and try to begin to think about the plans uh, to deal with Um, the fall of North Korea. Here we are, 2020. Literally decades later. And everybody's waiting for the same thing and it's not going to happen. So when people think that it's easy to make regimes fall or that something's going to happen internally to have that happen, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. The change in the Soviet Union was 40 years in the making, if not longer. So, uh, North Korea is even harder than Iran because it doesn't have vast trading relations with countries all over the world. Iran does, Iran has a literate middle class. They watch TV, they get on the internet, even though they have censorship, they have ways to get around it. They see what's happening in the world. Most people in North Korea don't know the outside world, aren't on the internet. The only television they get are preset televisions in their houses that only play revolutionary programming. Um, Pyongyang, uh, which I've been to for a long time now, I was there twice uh, in the late 90s, early 2000, is almost a Potemkin village uh, where there are some people doing well and a lot of buildings with no one in them. And beyond Pyongyang, as we've all seen on that skylight picture, there's very little light. Uh, because there's very uh, little electricity. So I don't see any change happening. I know everybody got all excited when Kim Jong-un didn't show up for a few days. Uh, I said at the time, maybe he was ill, but I did not think he was dead. Uh, He likes to play these games. It helps him get attention. He was probably a little scared of coronavirus, so took himself away for a while. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he had some surgery. I don't know. But it doesn't matter. He does this in part to gain attention and control and play the puppeteer with the rest of the world. And he does it quite well, actually. Um, I don't want to go on forever, so let me just add, I supported President Trump having his first summit. I thought we tried a lot of things. Why not try this? These were both men who believed they were the only ones who counted. So maybe they could count for each other. But I also said that President Trump needed to go there with a negotiating team ready to get down to work, with a strategy, with a plan. And of course, there was none of that. And three summits later, there was still none of that. Steve Beegan, who's the special envoy, really capable professional, really capable, um, has tried very hard. Uh, but the president really wants it all happening by him. And that makes it very difficult to do. So now we have a North Korea with many nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them.
1: Very scary. That's what I was going to ask. Are we better off or worse off for the diplomacy that's been undertaken, the three summits, the meetings, and so forth? Are we better off today than we were three years ago?
2: Um, It is true that North Korea has not tested a nuclear weapon. That's a good thing. But it also means that they're so well advanced they may not need to test another nuclear weapon. And as we all know, a lot can be done by computer simulation these days, more so than once was able. They have done some space launches, so they would not consider those missile tests. Uh, And they have done some testing of shorter range missiles. Um, So that's a good thing, but they have continued to build weapons, and they have continued to advance their missile capability. So in my view, we are not better off because I think they have a larger stockpile of both. They have a lot of mobile missile launchers, uh, which are quite problematic. Um, So uh, I think we're in a very tough place. And because of the complicated relationship that the United States has with China right now, which Australia understands extremely well, Um, and the difficult relationship between Japan and South Korea, the stars are certainly not aligned for those of us outside of North Korea to come together to try to forge a solution. And President Trump prefers bilateral action under any circumstances anyway.
1: So not promising. Um, You met with Kim's father, Kim Jong Il in North Korea And I'm Mm -hmm. curious as to whether, and so you took, I guess, some measure of the man and what he was capable of doing and perhaps not capable of doing, as imperfect an impression as that might have been. Mm -hmm. And then you've seen uh, Kim Jong-un in action and so forth. How do you rate the son against the father? Do you see wider horizons with the son than you did with the father?
2: Perhaps a little bit. Uh, Kim Jong-il, you know, I spent with Secretary Albright maybe 12 hours with him smart, he knew the subject matter, Uh, he was transactional, I think a deal could have gotten done. We'll never know. The Clinton administration ran out of time. Um, Kim Jong-un has tried to model himself more after his grandfather, which is, in some ways, a larger presence. His grandfather is the founder of modern North Korea. he was ready to deal with the United States. I believe there would have been a summit, but he died suddenly. Uh, but he did agree to the 1993-4 framework agreement, which did keep North Korea from building nuclear weapons for, for a decade. There, was, there were no nuclear weapons, no long-range missiles during the entire Clinton administration. So, uh, I think that the grandfather saw his place in history a little differently than his son Kim Jong Il did, and I think Kim Jong Un, because he's trying to model himself after his grandfather, may have a little bit more scope, but he's sitting in the catbird seat right now. He got credibility. He got recognition. He showed he was powerful and could be mano a mano with the great American uh, president. Uh, I'm not sure what else he wants right now. And he has China supporting him again. Uh, so for right now, he's okay.
1: You, you know, when I've seen uh, the photographs of uh, Kim Jong-un on the white stallion in the remote regions <laughs> of North Korea, uh, be a very, and going to places where his grandfather helped found the party and brought the communist country, together, then you see you just see the symbolism and everything he's trying to conjure up to cement his rule and authority and uh, over his people, it's re- really, really fascinating. Um, right,
2: no, no no, one should doubt, no one should doubt though, that Kim Jong-un is utterly
1: ruthless. He killed his oh, uncle. he killed his uncle, he killed some people. In two husband. weeks
2: after being uh, made uh, the leader of the country. Uh, so he is ruthless and brutal.
1: Yes, and his brother, half brother, anyway. Um,
2: right, assassinated in Malaysia, yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, If Joe Biden is elected, uh, what does 2021 look like for him with North Korea, in your judgment?
2: Now, some of us were talking about this earlier today um, on another Zoom uh, with a lot of colleagues at Harvard. I think one of the interesting things for all of us who care about national security and foreign policy and the security of the world, is there are all these hotspots but they've all disappeared from the view of people in their day-to-day lives because people are understandably and appropriately consumed with whether they're gonna have a job, whether their kids can go to school, whether it's safe to go outside. Um, I haven't seen my grandsons since our lockdown. I, I hope that changes sometime soon, but it is, it is um, the unemployment in our country is profound. Uh, The recovery in 2008-2009 took easily a decade. Uh, Some people estimate this will take much longer. So although I believe that uh, President Biden believes in smart and tough engagement, even with people who are adversaries, um, he going to be consumed first and foremost with the American economy, uh, as most countries are. And I think that all of us have to think about what our countries are going to do differently. Is everybody going to try to pull their supply chain inside their own country so they aren't reliant on another country if there's a pandemic or environmental disaster? Uh, How are we all going to deal with China, who has tried to fill the vacuum as the American president has pulled out of multilateral organizations. Uh, What just happened at the WHO I I find so disturbing. So um, I think the world is going to be different uh, in the wake of this pandemic, at least for quite some time because of the economic impact and how people will react to that, what jobs will become important, uh, how we will innovate our way through this. Uh, I think people are going to feel very differently for quite some time.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, Simon, back to you for some questions from our viewers. Sure. Thank you. Um, We've got a a, a very uh,
0: specific question here from uh, a a, a journalist with BBC News. That's Barman Kalbasi. Um, And we we touched on this just before, uh, Wendy, and, and it's about where would a Biden presidency land on on an Iran deal? And so the question runs, do you believe the Biden campaign is slowly walking back his, Biden's promise to rejoin the nuclear deal with Iran if Iran goes back to full compliance? And in the last, and I'm quoting, in the last 72 hours, Mr. Blinken, top foreign policy advisor, Mr. Biden, <laughs> has offered curious phrasings like, time has passed, Biden will look, to build a stronger agreement if Iran returns to full compliance or quote, if Iran comes back into compliance, we would use that to build a stronger, longer platform. Um, is it realistic for a Biden administration to condition a return to the deal to, on new concessions from Iran without, starting, without insisting it, it adheres to the existing deal first? So uh, a question from Barman at BBC News.
2: Thanks. Well, I would listen very hard to what uh, Tony Blinken says. He's just fantastic. Um, and uh, he has worked with Vice President Biden all the way back to when he was a senator and chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Tony was counsel to the committee. He's in- incredibly good at what he does. Um, and uh, his last position was Deputy Secretary of State. Before that, he was a Deputy National Security Advisor. So he's quite knowledgeable and he knows <clears> the fight. <throat> Well, I don't think Tony's comments, uh, and I don't, in this instance, speak for Vice President Biden, though I support him. Um, He, uh, What Tony said is not so different from what I said, which is it's not enough to just go back to the status quo ante. It's not. Uh, The deal's gone on for too long. The circumstances have changed. The world has changed. Uh, There has to be more here. What the sequencing is. Uh, I think you have to wait until uh, you're in office, you see whether you can rebuild your alliances and relationships, uh, how the world is, what your fingertips are for the situation, and then uh, figure out how to best sequence moving forward. So I think to try to decide today exactly what those chess moves would be, uh, would be foolhardy. No good negotiator should do that
0: just sticking with Iran for a little bit longer. um, uh, Some of uh, our students uh, from the University of Sydney uh, are on the, are on the chat today or on the webinar today. Uh, James Burns um, asks uh, uh, an interesting question. And that, that is, how do you make something like the JCPOA more an interesting form of words here? Ideologue resistant. Um, (laughs) um, Is there, and look, I'll, I'll throw that to you as is. I'm uh, uh, interested in your answer. Yeah.
2: You know, all through the negotiation, my Iranian counterparts, knowing we were approaching a presidential election, said, how can you assure me this deal will stick? And I said, how can you assure me the deal will stick? How can you assure me that President Rouhani will be re-elected? How can you assure me that the Supreme Leader won't change his mind, which he did several times during the negotiation? So a deal is only as durable as the contents and the strength of the deal. And so the fact that it lived for quite some time after the United States of America pulled out shows the durability of the deal and that it wasn't about ideology. It was about compliance. And it wasn't ever about trust. It was perhaps about gaining some respect for each other. But it was never about trust. Iran doesn't trust me. I don't trust Iran. We tried to understand each other's interests and try to deal in a way that ensured that Iran would not obtain a nuclear weapon. So um, I don't think you can ever make something foolproof. Times change. Australia throws out one government and brings in another. Uh, <laughs> one hopes for some continuity, uh, but you don't always get it. And you know we've all long had this fantasy that uh, national security and foreign policy ends at the water's edge. It's just not true.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, that that's I, that's great, and um, I get the I get the sense, I get the sense uh, you're you're a little classroom uh, hardened. Uh, it was a great <laughs> a great student question. Uh, well done. Great student question. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, um, uh, Gordon Flake, uh, who is the CEO of our sister center out in Perth, and I'm sure Wendy, you know Gordon from his time. I do. Right? Yeah. He's great. Yeah running the Mansfield Center in career focus shop in in Washington before he came to Australia. Um, Gordon's um, got two questions in. Um, I think we've already dealt with one, but let me let me um, uh, ask his second question that he's logged in in real time today, <clears throat> and that is, um, even before the famous Axis of Evil speech from um, George W. Bush there seems to have been, Gordon's words, a strange cosmic bond between Iran and North Korea. Uh, Does that continue post-Singapore and post-US withdrawal from the JCPOA?
2: Oh, I don't know. Maybe there's a cosmic bond, Gordon, but I think they're both fully absorbed with their own issues and their own problems. You know, one of the Unfortunate things about, in my view, President Trump's approach is that um, the United States too often ends up isolating itself rather than isolating others. Uh, And because the president prefers bilateral, not multilateral, not alliance building, which comes with a lot of alliance management, um, it leads to strange bedfellows so we see iran and russia and china and perhaps even at times north korea doing things together it's not because they love each other Uh, the mistrust among them is quite high it's just because they find some common interests and sometimes that common interest is anything but the united states of america so uh it is one of the real i think uh consequences of President Trump's approach to national security and
0: foreign policy. Right. Relatedly, um, might be a good segue to a question from Penelope Nelson. Um, And Penelope asks, um, will the U.S. ever recover civility in foreign (laughs) affairs? And then quite pointedly, uh, Uh, Penelope's question, not mine. How embarrassed are professional diplomats of the conduct of US foreign policy under the Trump administration?
2: I think it's very hard. Uh, I think, you know, when the Trump administration got going, um, probably once a week uh, when I was living in Washington, I'd have somebody who called up or came over or wanted a cup of coffee and said, should I stay? Should I stay? And I urged everybody to stay as long as they possibly could, because we needed their expertise, we needed their institutional knowledge, we needed them to try to help President Trump and his cabinet and his political appointees head in the right direction, even when it was hard. But I said to them, if it ever gets to a point where you just ethically cannot, as many have done in the past, um, the famous diplomat Dick Holbrook, may he rest in peace, and Tony Lake, who became Bill uh, Clinton's national security adviser, were both foreign service officers but left the Foreign Service over Vietnam. So there are times when one leaves, when I was the Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs and had to go sell the Clinton foreign policy up on Capitol Hill, we were, you know trying to figure out what to do in Bosnia, very hard, sell up on the hill, particularly since uh, Bob Dole at the time, Uh, thought we should be intervening, as did George Mitchell. So both Republicans and Democrats thought the administration was wrong in its approach. And I was getting to the point where I was going to tell Warren Christopher, the Secretary of State, I'm not sure how long I can do this. And then um, I saw, now it's been declassified, the photograph of Srebrenica, the mass grave. And I walked down to Christopher's office and I said, "Uh, Mr. Secretary, I cannot go up to Capitol Hill and sell this policy after seeing this. He had come to the same conclusion, as did the president of the United States. Uh, The photograph was declassified, brought to the UN Security Council, and everybody knows the rest of the story. So uh, this is very tough. And everybody has to make their own personal decision. The worst part of all of this is that uh, 60% of the senior foreign service have left the building. They've either been pushed out or counseled out or retired. A lot of uh, young people are not going into the Foreign Service. The number of applications are down. And I urge any young American listening to this, to, who's interested, join the Foreign Service. You're not going to be doing high policy when you first get in. You're going to learn your craft, and times will change. In my view, I hope Joe Biden becomes president. And by the time you learn your craft, you'll be in great shape to help deliver policy in a reconstituted and re-energized uh, national security apparatus.
0: Thanks for that answer to that question. Um, um, finally from from me, this will probably be the last question of the morning. Um, I'm just we've been talking about Iran and North Korea, you know, policy foreign policy challenges that, that you walked in and just then we referred back to to Bosnia back in the in the Clinton administration. And earlier, Wendy, you were also talking about the competition for attention and focus for certain foreign policy issues, or maybe even foreign policy as a class of issues <laughs> in the time of COVID 19. But I think something that Australians are really acutely, maybe even anxious about, um, is where American strategic attention is at the moment. And for us, you know, the documents like the National Security Strategy, the um, Say we're back in an era of great power rivalry. Uh, ch- China and Russia are our big areas of strategic focus, and allies like Australia take those documents extremely seriously and 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 look for the follow through. And yet, um, you know, at the last uh, ministerial consultations between um, Australia and the United States, um, it was the the. The readout um, that leaked a little into the foreign policy community here in Australia, and, and did make it into the media here, um, was that um, very quickly, American secretaries, particularly the Secretary of State, was very adamant about Australia's participation back in the Middle East with the Straits of Hormuz uh, operation, uh, would we be contributing assets to that operation? People in Australia will also, in foreign policy and defense circles, will very quietly voice a little bit of frustration about how much of our, you know, we're a small country with limited resources, how much, you know, hours are being run up on airframes, uh, coalition operations out there in the Middle East, when yet these big canonical documents of American foreign policy are, are saying China and Russia and certainly that would be Australia's sense of its own strategic circumstances as well. So long story short there, I guess the question is, how do you assess the in that battle for strategic focus in Washington right now? Iran, obviously with the domestic political resonance it has for President Trump versus the stated big ticket things like China, all with this overlay now of the pandemic, Wendy. So I'd love your readout on that sort of with a view to how our Australian listeners are very looking for clues as to where American strategic focus from the administration lies.
2: I think that you will see in this campaign an enormous focus on China, enormous. And I think that's partly because of COVID. And I think uh, there isn't an American who doesn't believe that China owes a full accounting of what happened to the world that an investigation needs to take place. Uh, I think uh, most Americans believe that uh, the United States has to be ready uh, for the coming decades in terms of its industrial policy, in terms of its building technological capabilities, the new biotech, uh, AI. other advanced technologies, quantum computing, that we have to invest in all of that and we have to be focused on it because we are in a competition with China. It is real and we have to be ready to compete. Um, I think that many Americans also believe that China is trying to say to the rest of the world that its way of being, its political and economic system is a system that should be respected and as a political competitor, And an economic competitor, particularly with the United States, is a great power. Uh, I think that United States democracy, although right now, in my view, uh, some of it has some tarnish on it, I think that can be uh, scraped away. And the fullness of our values, of our democracy, of our shared values with Australia can be predominant once again in how we fashion the world. That doesn't mean we have to disrespect China's view of how to manage its own people. But it does mean that we have to speak about human rights. Uh, When China abuses the human rights of its people and puts Uyghurs in concentration camps, uh, we have to uh, be ready to deal. um, We have to be ready to compete. We have to be ready to challenge when necessary. And uh, hopefully it won't come to it, but we have to confront where necessary. So I think it's a very complicated relationship, but a critical one. Uh, I think there are other powers in the world, uh, India, uh, which is going to be the largest everything by 2030, uh, is, um, a power that has stayed regional. And I don't know whether it'll break out of that space, but I think you will hear an enormous about amount about China. I think you will hear two very different versions and visions by the president of the United States and by the vice president, uh, Biden. and I think, uh, the vice president's
0: going to have it right. <laughs> we, well, the idea then, those points of divergence, um, are th- again, things that those of us, you know, uh, paying close attention to American foreign policy will be paying close attention to, uh, uh, to put it mildly, um, having, with you having sort of said to look out for that, we we'll, are definitely paying even closer attention. Um, we are, out of time and it's surprising how fast an hour goes <laughs> and and Wendy um I'm I'm uh, so jealous of your Harvard students there um one of the great things about institutions like the K school and you know I had time at the Wilson school at, at Princeton you know getting people with distinguished careers in public service like yourself to to come in and help train that next generation of thinkers and policymakers Um, thank you for sharing your experience, uh, that you share with them, uh, with us today, uh, through, through this medium and and thanks to Bruce, uh, uh, and, and for the friendship between Bruce and Wendy that, that that, truth be told made today happen. And, and that, that that's absolutely wonderful. And And I'm so pleased we're able to do it. And particularly given it's getting in later in the evening there in Boston, um, Next week, we are so excited again. that the quality that of our guests that we're able to bring into the center's orbit through this medium. It's Phil Rucker, who is um, a correspondent for the Washington Post, uh, White House bureau chief. Um, that is next Tuesday, and that is going to be fantastic. Phil Rucker has been hitting it out of the park um, with the questions the last two weeks. It was his question that prompted the line about detergent and light uh, getting inside people's bodies, the speculation about that. And and moreover, in the last 72 hours, um, exactly what crime has President Obama committed when you refer to Obamagate? Um, it, it's almost like there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship between Phil Rucker and President Trump at the moment. Uh, but we're, we're going to be hearing from Phil uh, for an hour on, on Tuesday. Phil, also the author of um, A Very Stable Genius and also the Washington Post reporter to help break uh, the, the, the scoop on the, uh, the Trump Turnbull phone call back in, um, in, in, in January of 2017. So, so that's coming up on Tuesday. Uh, do check out the events part of our website where you can catch up with our past events and also see what we've got lined up in the future. Uh, and again, my very special thanks to Wendy and, and to Bruce. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Bruce. Thank you. Uh, and hope to do this again sometime soon with you, Wendy, uh, perhaps in person one day. It would be it would be absolutely <laughs> wonderful.
2: I'll look forward to it and say to all of the young people here, you're the principled public effective leaders that we're looking for and need. So keep doing everything you're doing. We're going to rely on you.
0: Well said, Wendy, what a great way to finish.